Oh, good evening, Evie Free. Good evening. I love the sound of the chatter. Can we give the band a round of applause for leading us in worship? Guys, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, well, my name's Austin Helm. I'm one of the teaching and venue pastors here at Evie Free. Uh, if this is your first time with us at Evie Free, uh, we want to say that we hope that you feel right at home. If this is your 500th time to Evie Free because you've been coming for decades, we want to say welcome home. Uh, we're simply a group of people that are passionate about following Jesus as disciples, connecting his family, and going into the world as missionaries. Uh, we're, we're passionate about those things because we think that's where the best kind of life is. Uh, that's the space in which you, you bump into these moments in which you just want to press the pause button because everything is firing on all cylinders. Now, life isn't always like this. But there is this, this, uh, this uh, encouragement in the text that the life of Jesus is the best possible life to live. Uh, when the text talks about it, it oftentimes talks about eternal life. Now, when the text talks about eternal life in the New Testament, it's really talking about two things. Uh, the first thing is what we oftentimes think of. It, it's, it's this idea that after death, there is a life that awaits us in the resurrection, in other words, there is a life after this life. But the other side of the eternal life coin is that eternal life, it's a certain quality of life. It's a kind of life that we can actually live here and now, and it echoes of eternity. And these are just a few verses that talk about this. This is actually John chapter 3, verse 16. It simply says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not experience death, but they will taste eternal life. Not only life on the other side of the grave, but a different kind of life here and now. This is the second half of Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It says, but the gift of God, God gives good gifts to his people. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may have eternal life, a vibrant, robust kind of life, the kind of life that you just want to hit the pause button and you want to freeze frame it because it's so good. Oftentimes, these seasons aren't just when things are good, but sometimes we can be in a difficult time, but we are overcome with the sensation of the presence of God. And even in great trial. Even in great difficulty, sometimes we want to press the pause button because God is so generous and he's so gracious with his presence towards us. That's actually the thing we're talking about this evening. Uh, we're talking about a church that is in that exact kind of situation. Uh, in fact, they, they are surrounded by all kinds of problems, but the writer that's writing to them wants to encourage them that God's presence is for them. And it's not just for them, but it's with them. Uh, this church we're speaking of, it, it's a local church in the first century. One of the closest disciples of Jesus, his name is John. Uh, church history tells us that he writes this letter called Revelation to seven churches in Asia Minor. And, and the reason John writes this letter is simply because John loves the local church. 
John, one of the earliest disciples of Jesus, loves the gathering together of God's people, not only in Jerusalem and in Israel, but all over the known world. And so in the first century, John would give uh, extravagant amounts of time traveling from local church to local church to local church, constantly stopping to, to encourage them. To encourage them to be faithful because the faithful life of discipleship to Jesus, in the words of John, is eternal life. It's the best life. It's the most vibrant life. And, and for John, part of this life meant you had to be a Jesus worshiper. Now, in the first century, it wasn't uncommon uh, to worship many gods. But part of the problem with Christianity in the first century is that if you're going to be a Jesus worshiper, you are an all or nothing worshiper. You couldn't worship Jesus and other gods. You couldn't worship Jesus and idols. You couldn't worship Jesus and the emperor. You had to worship Jesus and Jesus alone. And so in the first century, Christians got a bad rap in the Roman Empire. And so as John's reputation grows as this Jesus worshiper, this full-fledged life of allegiance to Jesus, uh, they take John captive and they send him into exile to the island of Patmos. And when John is sent into exile, it would have absolutely broken his heart. John loved to travel and to gather with God's people to encourage them in person. But, but although John's heart is broken, his will is not when he's on the island. And so John sits on this island and he has this revelation of Jesus. And if Jesus were speaking to the local churches that John had been traveling to, this is the encouragement that Jesus would give to the local churches. And so even though John isn't able to travel to these churches, he writes this letter, this letter later called Revelation, a revelation of Jesus to the churches. And so we're in the middle of a series kind of wrapping it up right now called Revelation, a word for the church and encouragement for the church. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Uh, John is writing to a local church, and he says quite a bit to this church, and we're going to focus in on the very end of it. But this is Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 to 17. It says, To the angel Of the church in Pergamum, write these words. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double edged sword. Now, notice these are not John's words, these are the words of Jesus. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Uh, In the New Testament, oftentimes when you talk about Satan, uh, a synonym for that is simply the adversary, the one who is against the kingdom of God. I know that you live where the adversary has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where the adversary lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. This is a rebuke in the form of encouragement. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So watch this. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Now those two things, when they're put together, uh, it's the idea of idol worship of the worship of foreign gods that belong to other countries. In other words, uh, they were constantly enticing the Israelites to worship Yahweh and, worship Jesus and. But for Yahweh worshipers and Jesus worshipers, it is to worship Yahweh only and Jesus 
only. He says, likewise, in verse 15, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus says, repent. Turn around, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. In other words, with with the sword of the word of God. Verse 17, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is speaking to the local churches this evening. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Gathering here together and reading from God's word, we believe that God's word is alive, that it's active, that it's dynamic, that it is in fact sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul from spirit, bone from marrow. In other words, we can leave here changed. We can leave here different. And so this evening, we want to invite the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do, which is to shape us and to change us and to form us. Let's pray together as we continue. Father, we pause for a moment as we read your word. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, in these next 15 to 20 minutes to do what only you can do. Would you come and would you speak to us? Would you come and would you nudge us? Would you come and would you whisper to us? Would you speak kindly to us in encouragement? Encourage us, God, to follow your son, to give our lives in deep allegiance and faithfulness to him in the life of discipleship. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I, I, love, I love that verse 17. Uh, when I was reading it this week, uh, it's the verse that stood out to me. Uh, the first part was simply this in Revelation 2, verse 17, to the one who is victorious. In other words, the Christian life is a life of victory. Yes, the Christian life is filled with trial. It's filled with tribulation. It's filled with struggle. Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have trouble. But ultimately, the text repeats over and over again that the life of discipleship is a victorious life. It's a life in which God wins not only in the cosmos, but in our own personal lives and the spheres of influence that surround us. In other words, God wins for us in the workplace. God wins in our families. God wins in our relationships and in our schools. To the one who is victorious, in other words, to the one who is faithful to walk out this life of discipleship, he continues, I will give some of the hidden manna. And if you're, if you're new to faith or even if you've been around faith for a long time, you're asking yourself, what is manna? And let me say, you're in good company. The ancient world asked the exact same question. And so this evening, we want to talk about what is this idea of hidden manna? It's not new in the first century for John to bring it up. In fact, this idea of manna was thousands and thousands of years old. And it popped up with Israel on their journey to the promised land from 
Egypt. And, and so before we get into that text, uh, just to speak briefly, uh, Israel is in this interesting situation. They had been in slavery in Egypt. They'd been in oppression in Egypt. And God sent Moses, his prophet, to bring Israel out of slavery and out of bondage and, and to lead them on a journey to the promised land. And, and for Israel, they could not have been more excited. Uh, but this is really what happens uh, to Israel as they journey. This is a, a quick drawing for those of you who missed. Uh, my drawings. Uh, this is Egypt, and this is a timeline. Uh, thousands of years ago, Israel was in slavery in Egypt, and they're delivered from Egypt, and they go on this journey to the promised land. PL stands for promised land. But in the text that we are about to read, Israel is about right here. And this long stretch of time, about 40 years between Egypt and the promised land, is the desert. It's the wilderness. Israel finds themselves right here. And if you've ever been on a journey, whether it was an athletic journey from preseason to a championship or from grade school to trying to graduate high school, there are moments when you feel like you're just in the desert. You feel like you're in the wilderness. And, and when you're in those moments, we begin to romanticize the past. Oh, elementary school was so much better than junior high. Oh, junior high was so much better than high school. Oh, sitting in air conditioning was so much better than being on the basketball court running sprints. There is this idea that whenever we're on a journey from Egypt to the promised land and we're in the desert, there's always this temptation to say, let's go back. It was, it was actually better there. But remember, Israel had been, had been crying out to the Lord to deliver them. And so God delivers them. But on the way to the promised land, they have this moment in which they say, gosh, this desert is a super big bummer. This wilderness is not what we expected it to be. So let's go back to Egypt because actually in Egypt, we had meat to eat. And the food out here is scarce. So, so Yahweh, just send us back to Egypt. And they begin to grumble against Moses. And, and this is what happens in the text immediately following that, beginning in Exodus chapter 16, verse 13. It says, That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. It says, When the dew was gone, uh, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. This was a really interesting sight for the Israelites. In fact, when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is this? It, it reminds me of being in elementary school. Uh, my folks didn't make me uh, lunches to take to school, and so I was one of the cafeteria kids. So, so I'd go through the line, I'd get my chocolate milk, and I'd go through line, I'd get my tray, and I'd get a few spoonfuls of what is this on my tray? And I'd sit down with my friends and we'd get our forks and pick at it and say, what is this? This is the same kind of moment for Israel. There's all this, this stuff on the ground and they ask the question, what is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is bread that the Lord's given you. This is bread the Lord has given you to eat. So this is what the Lord has commanded you. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. So take an omer for each person to have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered a lot and some gathered a little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered a little did not have too little. And everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it 
until morning. Uh, but you can imagine, uh, the Israelites are surrounded by a problem. The problem is the desert. The problem is the wilderness. And so you can imagine when bread appears, your temptation is going to be, I need to keep as much of this as I can because we don't know when we're going to see it again. We don't know when this bread is going to appear again. So we should, we should hoard it, take it back to our tents and save it for later. But this is what happens. It says, however, some of them paid no attention to Moses. And so they kept some of this, this manna until morning. But when morning came, it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. So it says, each and every single morning, everyone would return and gather as much as they needed for that day. And when the sun grew hot, this manna would melt away. It says the people of Israel called this bread, what is it? They called it manna. Uh, when scholars investigate this word manna, that's, that's the best translation they have for it. What is it? Constantly walking out. It was like, like white, like coriander seed, and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come. So they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness, to eat in the desert, to eat on your journey from Egypt to the promised land. So Moses takes these words to Aaron. says, Aaron, get a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord had commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. And the Israelites ate this bread. They ate this cafeteria food for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Uh, The idea in this text is that in the same way that the early church in Revelation 7 is surrounded by a problem, they are promised the hidden manna. In other words, they are promised for the presence of God will be with them every single day. As Israel travels through the desert from Egypt to the promised land, every time this bread would pop up, it was a promise that God's presence would be with them in the midst of their problems every single day. In this text, Moses and Aaron, they're they're encouraged to, to take this cafeteria food, this manna, this bread, to put it in a jar to preserve it in the Ark of the Covenant. Why? To remind the future generations that God is always with his people in the midst of their deepest, darkest problems. In the midst of their deepest and darkest pain. So this happens for Israel thousands of years earlier before this church in Revelation. And this, this jar of manna is kept in the Ark of the Covenant. The generations to come would always remember, yeah, we might be surrounded by a problem, but God's presence is with us. God's presence is with us every single day, regardless of the pain, the situation, the hurt, the habit, the hang of God's presence was going to be with them. Hebrews says it this way. This is Hebrews chapter nine, beginning in verse one. It says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly tabernacle. Now remember these words right here, uh, the first covenant, because a new covenant is coming And the text says that a tabernacle 
was set up. A tabernacle was simply a portable, a portable church. It was a portable temple. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, so in the tabernacle, the further you went in, the more holy it got. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. And in the most holy place, there was a golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. In other words, this was a sign throughout the generations that whenever the priests would go into the most holy place and they would see the ark, they would remember that inside of that ark is the manna that was provided to the Israelites in the desert. And the priests being reminded of seeing this visual representation every day would constantly encourage the people of God and the holy place and further out that we may be in a difficult situation. We may be in the midst of our, of our toughest problem. We may be in the midst of our darkest pain, but God's presence is with us. His presence was with his people in the desert. And this manna is a reminder that God's presence will always be with his people. Uh, And so this became, this idea of manna became a story that Israel told over and over again to remind themselves that God's presence was with them. And, And then in the first century, Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus makes the most wild claims known at the time. In fact, Jesus, as much as it said in the first covenant, this is how it was. Jesus is going to set up a new covenant. A covenant that's better than the first covenant. And watch what Jesus says to some of the people that are surrounding him. And Jesus is speaking to the crowds and and they say, how can we have the best kind of life? How can we have the kind of life you're talking about? And Jesus answered him, uh, you have to do the work of God. And so they say, what, what, is, what is the works of God? What do we need to do? He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. And so the crowd responds. They ask him, what sign will you give to us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? They continue, our ancestors Thousands of years ago, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Uh, Jesus said to them, very, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father. It's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and it gives life not just to God's people, but it gives life to the world. Uh, this crowd surrounding Jesus, they're referring back to this story from Exodus, saying, God did this. What do you have to show us? And they say, Jesus, if this is true, if this is true, give us some of this bread, but not just once, always give us this bread. Always give us this satisfying bread that will be God's presence in the midst of pain, in the midst of trouble, and in the midst of problems. And then watch what Jesus says. If this is offensive, it should be. It offended the crowds that were surrounding Jesus. He declares, I am the bread of life. 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He continues a few verses later to, to bring this point home. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And he says, the bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This statement, the bread of heaven, the bread from my father, Jesus says, is my flesh. In, in, the, in the first century, uh, the early church was oftentimes accused of being cannibals, of eating human flesh because of these words of Jesus. Jesus continues, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You have no satisfying life in you. You have no eternal life in you. So whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. What? These are some of the wildest words coming from Jesus. He continues. He just says this over and over again in case they think they're mishearing him. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I remain in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me, the one who constantly eats my flesh will live because of me. This, this is the true bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on the, the bread of my flesh will live forever. In other words, the manna was good in the desert. The manna was a good reminder of God's presence with his people and the deepest pain and the deepest problem and the deepest trial, but the body of Jesus is better. The flesh of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is better. This became a, a, a practice in the early church. Uh, Paul is speaking to his church and he simply says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body. This bread is my flesh. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, the promise of the presence of God to be with God's people began thousands and thousands of years ago as this manna, this bread that would fall from heaven. And then thousands of years later in the person of Jesus, Jesus says, I'm the new bread. 
and that bread is my flesh. And for thousands of years after that point, local churches around the world have constantly come to the table of communion to remember God's presence with his people. That in the midst of our darkest pain, in the midst of our deepest trouble, in the midst of our biggest problems, the presence of God is with us. And as a local church, we may ask, what sign is there? What confidence is there? Jesus says, it's my body broken on the cross. It's my blood poured out on the cross. That is a constant reminder to God's people throughout the generations that the presence of God is always with his people. And so we return just briefly to John chapter 6, verse 41. This is the response of the crowd to the words of Jesus. Jesus has made all these gnarly claims. It says, at this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. What a scandalous claim Jesus can make. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? And Jesus responds, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me. No one can come and eat my flesh and drink my blood unless the Father who sent the Son draws them to himself. And I will raise them up on the last day. I love that phrase. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Nobody can come to the table and, and experience these, these very ordinary elements that are filled with God's presence unless God calls them. And I want to say tonight God is calling you. Tonight God is calling you. You may have walked in these doors with a significant source of pain. You may have walked into these doors with a problem that seems insurmountable. You may have walked into this space with, with, with trouble that feels like the highest mountain that you cannot get over. But, but the, the testimony of Scripture that in the midst of our pain, our problem, and our suffering, God's presence is with us. And every time we come to the table, we're reminded in fact, in this service, we come and, and somebody's holding the bread and they say, this is Christ's body broken for you. And you take the bread and someone else will say, this is Christ's blood poured out for you. And you, you dip the bread in the cup and you take it back to your seat and you wait. And then we take the elements. There is this sensation, this very physical sensation of the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. And as we do it, we, we approach these very ordinary elements in a very sacred kind of way. Because the text would say that it's infused with the presence of God. That in the bread and in the cup, the very spirit of Yahweh that led Israel out of Egypt to the promised land and the very spirit of Yahweh that gave us his son and the very spirit of Yahweh that has propelled his church forward for thousands of generations is found here at the table. And so this evening, we're gonna come to the table. 
I'm going to pray, and when I'm praying, the band is going to come up, and the community team is going to come forward. And and I would encourage you that, that as we come and as the band plays, whatever it is that you brought into this space, we can meet with Jesus at the table. We can be reminded that no matter how deep the pain, no matter how difficult the problem, no matter how troublesome the trouble, the presence of God is with us. And we have the amazing opportunity this evening to be reminded in a very tangible way that as we hold that juice-soaked wafer in our hands, somehow God's presence fills it. And His Spirit begins to speak to us. In these very ordinary elements, God's presence is hiding. He's concealed in elements such as this. And it actually becomes a reminder to us that God is hiding in every area of our lives. That within the problem, within the pain, within the trouble, God is there. He's present. But it's very possible He's concealed. And that He's hiding. And He is working everything together for the good of those who love him. And so this evening we have this amazing opportunity to come before the presence of God in a very tangible way. So I'm going to pray just here in 10 seconds and while I'm praying the band will come up and the community team will come forward and there's actually arrows on the ground next to you. If you want to exit from your right and follow the arrows for the front, you'll return back by following the arrows. And we pray that this becomes a time in which you can bring your pain, you can bring your problem, you can bring your trouble, you can bring your wilderness experience and know that God's presence is for you. That God's presence is with you and that God's presence will never, never leave you. To the one who's faithful, to the one who's victorious, I will give the hidden manna, the presence of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you we thank you that your son has become the defining marker for the generations to come of your presence with your people. That his body broken on the cross, his blood poured out thousands of years ago has been a sign to all of the world that every time we come to the table, we can remember the cross. We can remember the very words of you. Whoever comes to eat of your flesh and to drink of your blood, they abide in you. And so in these words that are very difficult for us to comprehend, in the midst of these words that are very difficult for us to understand, would your, would your mystery be at work in us? Would your spirit be at work in us? So Father, tonight we come before your table. We come into your presence so that you may abide in us and that we may abide in you. And that for us who, who desire to be victorious and faithful, we would taste tonight of the hidden manna the hidden manna of your presence for your people. 
in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.